0: 400 days ago, I began this series, The Shadow King. 14 days later, the entire world shut down with COVID-19. This is a series of messages that have been in my heart for several years. Ten years ago, I developed them in a small group class. And I knew when I became the pastor seven years ago that at some point I wanted to teach this deep dive, this drilling very deep into the one of the most celebrated and yet most controversial leaders, God followers in all of the 66 books of the Bible. King David, we are going to be going on a journey, a biopic into the life and leadership, the love, the, uh, the dysfunction and the function, the, uh, the great feats and the great defeats of an incredible king. To start, I I, I will say that on the stage of human history, there are all kinds of leaders that you will read about in history books. However, there are only a handful of leaders that have been afforded the title great. Mother Russia had Catherine the Great, who led Russia into years and years of prosperity in the 1700s. Interesting note that she took over from the previous king with a total overthrow, surprise overthrow. It just happened to be her own husband, Peter III. That makes for some awkward pillow talk the next day. Hey, babe, sorry. In England, we had Alfred the Great, who was a great military leader. Uh, Over in Greece, we of course had Alexander the Great. Movies have been done about Alexander. In Persia, we had Cyrus the Great. There are no American leaders given this title. We don't have a Washington or Lincoln the Great. We don't have a a General Patton the Great. Uh, So it's reserved for moments in history of unparalleled uh, leadership in life, larger than life. The nation of Israel, which is the key people group from Genesis to Revelation in the story of God. He uses the nation of Israel to really lay out the, uh, all of us, and he uses that nation as a kind of an epicenter of his stories. Uh, the stories not about people trying to find God, but God showing himself to people. Israel has no, in an interesting turn of events, they have one leader that was named Great, and his name was Herod the Great, but Herod wasn't given the name Great by his, uh, his followers. He wasn't given the name Great by uh, history books. He gave himself the name Great. Like, you can be great if you just give yourself the name, Jeremy the Great, you know? Like, like that, that doesn't work, everybody, okay? You know, I'm the most humble man I know. Like, like, that doesn't work, okay? Other people need to call you humble. I'm really like Jesus. I'm a lion and I'm a lamb. I'm humble. And people are like, you're an idiot. That's what you are, <laughs> Herod the Great was great because he wanted to see himself was as great, but he was really more bloodthirsty than he was great. He was super insecure, super defensive, had a jealous rage. He, he performed mass infanticide on his own kingdom when he heard from a group of traveling wise men that came and said, hey, we're here to celebrate the birth of a new king. Where might we find him? And Herod's like, wait, 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 there's only one king in this in this palace, who are you talking about? And they said, well, we've heard that, you know, we were given a sign and we were following the star. He says, let me know about it so I can go worship too. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more, say no more. They go and, and, and they don't go back to tell him where they found him. And so Herod, in order to get rid of this baby king, he slaughters all of the children under three years of age. Like he's bloodthirsty. He has his own brother killed because he feels like his brother's trying to take over his throne. He has two of his wives killed. He had his mother-in-law killed, which, you know, I mean, that makes sense. But, but anyway, mo- moving on quickly, uh, Herod's the only one in Israel that was ever named great. But if there was one that, a, that, that should have been, it most certainly would have been King David. King David, larger than life, character in the Bible. As a matter of fact, it's hard for you to even understand all of the story of Jesus because of many of the instances where Jesus is even called, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, the the root of David, uh, uh, Jesus um, in the line of David, all of this connectivity of Jesus and David, it's hard to understand the story of God without David, Outside of his own story, David is mentioned 182 times in the Old Testament and 59 times in the New. And here's what we're doing is I'm setting up, I'm putting the ball on the tee today. We're going to jump in and we're going to do a deep drill down on this larger than life character. And I've divided it in not to one series, but actually one big series divided in three volumes, kind of like, Star Wars with the three different movies and then the other three movies and then the other three movies. We're going to divide this sucker out into three volumes, one big story, three volumes. We're going to be in volume one, origin stories. We're going to lead up before David is anointed. We're going to lead up and and discover the key major lead actors in the story Volume two, it will be uh, David and Goliath moving on into civil war where Saul, his predecessor, has jealous rage and wants to do nothing but spend the rest of his life chasing David in the desert trying to kill him because he's jealous and insecure in his own kingdom. And volume three will be David being coronated, crowned king, and the ups and the downs of David's kingdom. You're not gonna wanna miss a week. If you have to be out of town, I encourage you, listen to the podcast. I don't don't know what numbers are on the path, whether you watch or not, but what I will say to you is this. This is gonna be rich with comparing the king of David, King David, but this is all about the shadow king. And wink, wink, hint, hint, King David ain't the real king. This is all leading us to the one true king. Now, what I wanna encourage you to do in this whole process, I'll do my part, here's your part. Don't put David in a suit and tie. Don't Billy Graham David, okay? He is living on the edge of the Bronze Age. He is a ruthless guerrilla mercenary warlord trying to put together a, a, a vagabond group of outlaw raiders to become his chief leaders and soldiers. It's a tribal, primitive day. It, it is it is cr- crazy times. There is no nation. It's just a, a band of different tribes living in different places. So don't you put the American 21st century version of David with a Bible... Under his arm, walking to Sunday school in his khaki pants and his polo shirt. This guy is ruthless, and you need to see this element to understand what Jesus truly brings long term. In fact, if you're taking notes, write this down in the fill in the blanks. David's story, this story, is not in the Bible to point us towards David. Because if you say, Man, I'd love to be like David, you're gonna have some problems on your hands, you'll have some issues. David's story is not in the Bible to point us towards David as much as he had incredible things. In fact, you may want to jot some of these down. They're not in your blanks, but here, here here's some thoughts for every single Goliath. David is going to deal with the dark side, the shadow of a Bathsheba situation for everything he conquers. There's something that's going to conquer him for every act of compassion There is a moment where David in his love and zeal for God gives away a third of his entire uh, riches, his personal riches, he gives a third of the kingdom away. Act of compassion, for every act, there's also gonna be a brutal slaughtering. There's even a story in all of this tucked away in order to give Saul a dowry. In other words, it's it's a price to be married to one of his daughters. He goes and he slaughters 200 Philistines and without their consent, he circumcises them and he brings 200 remnants of circumcisions to king. That's in the Bible. You ought to, you ought to read it sometime. It's, it's crazy. That's an interesting gift in the throne room. <laughs> What's in it? What is the gift? You, what in the world is that? What is this? Moving on. It's in there. He is a brilliant military leader who can lead all kinds of men into battle. He's got unbelievable strategic, creative foresight, and he's also a hated father. He leads men, but it's hard to lead his own sons. He's a spirit-led poet with prophetic and messianic insights. He gives us most of the Psalms. In fact, there's a Psalm that he writes, Psalm 22, That Jesus quotes on the cross. It's the connection. The very first words out of Jesus' mouth when he is hung on the cross are the words that we talked about on Easter last week. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Those are not words that Jesus is saying originally. He is quoting scripture. Psalm 22 starts verse 1. Verse 1. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And Psalm 22, written hundreds and hundreds of years before the cross, before crosses were even invented, David will write in great detail what will happen to Jesus on the cross. So this man of God, king, leader, David, warrior, spirit, led, spirit of God speaking through him in giving us insights into the crucifixion and resurrection. And yet, even though he's spirit led, he broke the laws of God and man. This is what's crazy for us in the 21st century. In 2021, we put on the pedestal, these mega evangelists, these mega speakers, these mega church pastors, and they're just as human as David. They're just as human as Jeremy. They're just as human as you are and can be spirit led and anointed and preach and struggle because you can be anointed and struggle. And yet, history gives him a greater name than David the Great. As a matter of fact, let me back that up and say, history doesn't give him the name. God himself in scripture will say, here's how I want you to remember David. That through all of the highs and the incredibly low lows, God said he is a man after my Now that should be some great news for you and some great news for me and especially great news for me. I am inspired by his victories. I'm also shocked by some of his sins. And isn't that the case for you as well? Where we can be so thankful for what God has done and how he's moved and how how much I felt him in that service and yet shocked that the things that I don't want to do I keep on doing are the things I know I should do, I'm not doing? That's the Apostle Paul too. Like I, 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 I want, I've got the desire to do right, but I don't have the power. I'm inspired to do right, but then I'm shocked that I keep doing the wrong... And the truth is, we tend to live where we just tolerate those shadows. We tolerate the shadows of, oh, I'll never be able to. I won't ever. God God won't forgive that. Or I'm just going to deal with it. I just can't ever break that habit. I'm just always going to be that person. And you don't have to be defined by the shadows in your life. David had plenty of shadows, but he ultimately was defined by what God said about him, not what he did with his life. So we got to tolerate the shadows, yeah. But in that, we find the light. And the light is there's hope for you and me. There's hope. If there was hope for David, there's hope for you. So David's story is not in the Bible to point us towards David. Every single story in the Bible points us towards Jesus. Um, The the, the, the whole idea of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery furnace. And there's there's a fourth in there. It's all about Jesus, parting the Red Sea, leaving the land of slavery into freedom. That's about Jesus that makes a way to true freedom. There's this story where there's this Bible college and it's a bunch of prophets together. They're going to Bible school and there's a famine in the land. And one, they they decide to have dinner together with all the scraps. They're just kind of making this crazy stew with all whatever. They're salting it with some socks, you know, like you see in the movies, like a hobo sock or whatever. I don't know if hobo's politically correct, whatever. A sock of person. And there's another guy in that whole deal chops up a gourd that he finds out in the forest. He doesn't know the gourd's poisonous, but the gourd's is poisonous. And whether you know it or not, there are things in your life you don't think are poisonous, you don't know are poisonous, but you're putting in your stew that are poisonous. Knowing is not, knowing is half the battle, G.I. Joe says. <laughs> Sometimes you got some, some bitterness and some poison in you. You don't even realize because you're just doing the same thing over and over. You just, it, looked, it looked like a good idea at the time. That's what this prophet does. Puts the, puts the root up in the stew and they start eating it all around the tables and one of them yells out, O-M-O-G! O man of God! Is what they say. There's death in the pot. And they all start throwing up and gagging and throwing up in the, in, in the, in the trash cans. And, and so instead of throwing the stew out, Elijah comes up with a handful of flour and throws flour in it and says, eat. So here's the story. He doesn't pull the poison out of the pot. He adds it in and that's what Jesus does. Jesus adding into your life, there's some habits and hangups. Your sin is washed clear, but there's some poisonous habits and hangups that you can get saved today and you can walk out and you still got some habits and hangups that are bitter for you, poisonous for you. But the more you add Jesus into the pot, it's not about you ever pulling anything out. You adding Jesus, that's what you need. It's all about Jesus. Every story in the Bible points us to Jesus. And in this story, as the lights come up on the movie screen and you see the video drone going over the waters of Galilee and across the the, the desert terrain into the lush areas of Israel, into the valleys where someday Goliath will approach the Israelites, you, you, you go over the city of Jebus that will become Jerusalem in the future. You go through the caves of Adullam with this drone shot, drone shot where David will have gathered with him 500 men and is running for his life from a bloodthirsty king named Saul. Before you get all that, you back up in time about almost 100 years and the geography is not like Canada, United States, and Mexico. The geography is a huge spaghetti of civilization. It's civilization spaghetti. Because you have, you have Lufkin, who's an Israelite stronghold, but up in Nak is the Philistines. Or over in Huntington is the Amalekites. Over in Dybal is the Edomites. And so you can have two or three Israeli, king, uh, Israeli villages, but then right across the, the river is the Philistines. So there are, there's this deal. And all of the Philistines, the Amalekites, the Edomites, they're forming government. And Israel is just a ragtag bunch of, of tribes. Philistines are becoming with a kingdom and a king and a military alliance. And so are the Amalekites and so are the Edomites. And so the nation of Israel they begin to decide, we want a king too. We want a king, but God had told them as they were coming out of Exodus, as they are coming out of Egypt, you don't want a king, let me be your king. And this is the beginning of the search for a king. This is where it all begins and begins to actually fall apart before God begins to put it together. The truth is, write it down. We're like Israel. All of us are searching for a king. Now for you, And we have just been through a season and we're still in this season where we have put so much kingdom authority in a political movement, a political party. All of us are searching for our political party to be on the throne again. And here's what I mean by king. Whatever I'm seeking for stability, prosperity, and happiness. So we can understand that from the political spectrum. If my party owns the White House or the legislature, if my party can be on the Supreme Court, if my party can own that, then I know that will guarantee stability, prosperity, and happiness. And the other side is saying, if I don't have the right people in the right spot, then I won't have stability. Everything's going to hell in a handbasket. Everything's going down. (laughs) We won't have prosperity, just get ready. Get ready to burn it all up. Why? Because we love to put all of our hope in kings. You wouldn't call them king president, but the way we rely on them, this is what the Bible's trying to tell. Everybody's searching for a king. Some it's marriage. If I can just get married, I'll finally find that stability, that prosperity, and that happiness. If I can just get that job, if I can just make a little bit more money, then I'll feel stable, prosperous, happy. If I can just, if I can just um, be able to experience these things, or hey, I don't care what I have to spend. I want to feel these this way. And so people will become addicted. People will chase after relationships, people will think that if I change marriages, that's what will bring the stability and the prosperity. They think if I just stop doing that or start doing that or have that friend or get that acknowledgement, recognition, all of us are searching for a king. And so we pick up a story, an origin story before there's ever a king in Israel. A key leader that will later anoint the first king. He's getting ready to come up onto the stage of the story. And it starts in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, chapter one. It starts with a guy named Elkanah. Elkanah had two wives. Uh, The story's already very, very complicated, okay? Like, I can barely make one happy. Good luck, Elk. Elkanah had two wives, One was called Hannah, and the other, Penaniah, Penny. We'll just call her Penny, okay? Hannah and the other Penny. Penny had children, but Hannah had none. So we begin to see the arc of the story begin to say, okay, there's something happening here. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. So, what we know about Elkanah is he is a, a Jew who honors God by recognizing the sacrifices, recognizing the festivals, and he would go to a certain place where the priest lived, and the priest would take his lamb or his goats or his, or, 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 or his sheep or whatever, and they would sacrifice. And this is all to cover the sin of their house. Year after year, whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions. They didn't just waste the meat, just didn't throw it on there and just leave. Once it was sacrificed, they ate the meat and they would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penaniah, and to all her sons and daughters, all her sons and daughters. So she didn't just have a couple of kids. She, she's, she's popping out babies, okay? Now, but to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. I wanna just pause here for just a second and and talk about the reality of of a room like this. Whenever there's a story in the Bible and it deals with emotions and it deals with real life situations, um, we can connect to the story. And I know that emotionally this connects with some of us in different ways and in different levels. Um, For some of us, we have a loved one or a friend who's um, trying to have a baby. Or you're in the room, in one of our rooms, watching online and um, fertility has been an issue, or um, being able to carry a baby all the way to term and you're, you've dealt with miscarriages, and, and that's a struggle, and the emotional weight of, of that um, I, I can't imagine. Um, I, don't, I don't understand. Um, and so when we talk about a story right here, there are those of us that really relate to the wounds that Hannah's facing, and that's not a light thing. But I also want you to realize that there's more than the emotional um, weight of this. This isn't just about Hannah having a closed womb. This is about Hannah's security, stability, prosperity, and happiness. Because in this culture, it's everything to have children. Everything. We may feel it's everything. It's not everything. It, everything there. Because without children, she's not able to have the, the uh, uh, her provision into Elkanah Incorporated. Elkanah and Penny are providing sons and daughters, and this is an agrarian society, agricultural society. And so the only way they live, the only way they grow the company is not by selling cars. They grow the company by plowing fields, planting seed, raising crops, harvesting the crops, selling the crops at market, and doing the same thing over and over again. The more kids they have, the more fields they can plow, the more crops they can have, the more they sell because they can set up different shops in different places of the market the more money they make to buy more fields, to plow, more, to plow and plant more crops. And so it's an ongoing thing of growth to build Elkanah, Inc. So Hannah is not providing for the family, number one. Number two, Hannah, without children, she has no 401K, no 403B, no, 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 no uh, uh, mutual fund. She, she is completely at her own. This is why the Bible talks about taking care of widows and orphans, because when a husband would die, if there are no sons The widow has no support. There's no government subsidy. There's no government help. You're done. You become a beggar. There's no work for you. You are a lower class citizen who isn't even considered a citizen in the kingdom as a woman. So Hannah, without children, will have no one to support her. Stability. Prosperity. Um, Without children, without sons, there's... Nothing to offer the band of tribes of Israel that are trying to form these warrior groups. So Penny's got boys to give to the military. Hannah does not. So you can see how this is everything to her future, her stability, her prosperity, and her happiness. Now, to make things worse, Hannah isn't just dealing with this in private, writing these things in her journal offering them just to the Lord between her. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Ooh, I know she didn't. That's Penny. Penny all up in Hannah's grill. Penny all pestering and what not. And when irritating her, she's not like poking her. <laughs> I know you are, but what am I? It's, it's probably more like, you know, in the kitchen, Hannah walks in and, and Penny's just like bouncing the baby. She's like, oh, can you take this one? I am just <sighs> exhausted can you just take this one, Hannah? I'm going to go get my nails done. Elkanah and I, we've got to go on a doubt w- date. We have not had time together. I'm running around with all these kids. It is crazy. You know, I mean, I know you don't know what I mean, but like, this is just crazy, isn't it? It's just like, he looks at me, and I get pregnant. <laughs> it's crazy. Can you just believe this thing? Elkanah can't keep his hands off me. Oh, <laughs> Elk. And it irritates Hannah, <laughs> Okay. And this isn't just one moment. This isn't just like a a phase. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord to offer those sacrifices and to eat the meat, her rival provoked her till she would weep and would not eat. Double portions left on the table that she could not eat because she was so vexed emotionally, and wounded by other people and by this lack. Many of us can relate. Um, Where you've been so hurt, it's like you can't eat. Where the only way to process what's going on is is to weep bitterly. Um, I want you to know God sees you. And many times what we're looking for is for the weeping to stop so we can eat again but I want you to know that God meets us where we are. He meets us in the crying. He meets us in the the hunger. Now, Elkanah, let's be honest, he's not winning like any Nobel Peace Prizes. He's kind of dense. I'll just say it like this. The Bible's full of idiots. Elkanah's one of them, okay? Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, come on, girl, Hannah banana. Come on, Hannah Banana. Why are you weeping, girl? Hey, chin up. Why don't you eat something? I grilled it medium rare just like you like it. Why are you downhearted, girl? Now, this is the line. This is the line. Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? <laughs> Drink it in, Hannah Banana. Mmm. And Hannah's like, hold my hoops, hold my hoops. No, Hannah's like, hard no, okay, Elkie. Elkina doesn't get it. I mean, he goes goes over to to the pool, you know, to go shoot some pool and, and, and throw back some suds. And he's talking to all his guys. He's like, I don't know what her problem is. I give her double portions all the time. I give her like the double portions, we sacrifice. I tell her, I mean, like, dude, am I not enough? And all of her, his, his friends are like, totally elk, like, you are enough. She doesn't even know what she's got in you. He's like, I know, belch. <laughs> but Hannah, it wasn't about Elkanah. It wasn't about what he could provide, even the double portion of me. He's trying, he's trying, he's trying. You know, sometimes, listen, you don't understand why I tried, and they're just not getting it because you don't know the depth of wounds that are in people. Well, I told them I was sorry, or I, I offered to help, and sometimes your offer to help is not what you need to offer. Sometimes, sometimes you just need to step back and just be present and just listen, or be present and just be present. The greatest gift some, sometimes you can give someone is presence without words. Because this time, after Elkanah says, am I not worth, He's, she's not eating, it's the double portions, Penny's uh, walking around on her cell phone, hey, yeah, what's up, girl, I gotta take these kids, uh, play date at the park. And once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now this, she's taken away from the table where the double portion, she hasn't touched it, and she says, I gotta be excused. Now, this isn't a soft, simple thing in the word of God. That sounds simple. Hannah stood up. But in the original language, there is, there is uh, an intensity in the standing up. There's, there's this strength in the way she, she erupts from the table. I wish I could, okay, the only way I know how to describe it is back when I was like a senior in high school, In our house growing up, there was a long hallway that had the bedrooms in the hallway, and the master bedroom was at the very end of the hallway. And if you stood at the end of the hallway and you looked down this way, you could see the dining room from the hallway, and you could see the edge of the dining room table and the head of the table. My dad would sit there and do the bills for the family on occasion, right there at the head of the table. One particular night, it's obviously chore night because dad is sitting at the table doing bills. I've just done something in the garage. I'm walking in. I walk down the hallway, and I go to the master bedroom. My mom is sitting on the waterbed, so you know it was a while back, sitting on the waterbed, and and she's folding clothes. I will say also, this is important in the story, she's fully dressed, okay? She's fully dressed. She's folding laundry, and I see dad, and I see that, and this is the way your pastor's brain works, even back then and now, and I apologize for that. You're getting the short end of the stick, I'm sorry, but this is the way my brain works. And immediately, this is what I thought of, not, mom, can I help you fold this laundry, okay? This is what I did, I, I, I said, mom. She looked at me and said, just go with me, just, just follow me, goes, okay, because dad was deep in thought over here. He can see me, I can see him, but he's not paying attention. And so I knock on the side of the door, the door is open, but I knock on the, like, the frame, You know. Hey, mom, and I opened the door, and this is what I said. Oh, mom, you're naked. What are you doing? Naked. And I'm standing there. And she goes, and she goes with me. I said, play along. And, you know, and she goes, she goes uh, Jeremy, shut the door. I'm naked. Like, I, I love my mom. She's in it. Like, she's like pulling the prank, okay? And then I said, and, 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 I, and then I said, hey, you look pretty good. Okay. So this is what happens with my dad. My dad is paying bills, okay? Ain't no bills online right now, all right? He's got all the papers everywhere. And when I start saying, Mom, you're naked, I I can see out of the corner of my good eye, my dad go, like that. And she goes, Jeremy, shut the door, shut the door. And he goes, like this. And I say, you look pretty good. And the same way Hannah stood up, Dad, the chair flew across the living room and he starts barreling barreling down the hallway like Terry Tate linebacker. He is running down, what are you? I had to fall on the ground with a foot up like this. No, I'm kidding, I'm joking, I'm joking. My mom's like, Terry, Terry, it's a joke. He's like, you don't tease like that. And neither do you. I don't know which one to ground. You're both grounded. Okay, that was a long way for a short point. But nevertheless, I got that off my chest. (laughs) Hannah, with much intensity, the Bible in this original language, she stands up with determination. She stands up with anguish. She stands up with all of her emotion. And in her deep anguish, this word for anguish, only time it's ever used to describe emotion. Every other time in the Bible that this Greek word is used in the Bible, it describes terrible storms. Like a hurricane. Um, The sea was anguished. Hannah is a storm in her life and it's just flooding her. And in her deep anguish, in her deep storm, here's what Hannah did. She prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. There's a formula here that many of us, we get wrong. Many times what happens is in our anguish, we weep bitterly and we don't go to the Lord. We weep bitterly and we go to Facebook. We get frustrated and and we go talk about it to other people. I cannot tell you how many times people that have gotten hurt or, or hurting or going through a tough hell on earth situation, how one of the first things they do is stop going to church. They stop connecting with other Christians. They isolate themselves. Hannah stood up in the crowd that was provoking her and went to the only one that would truly calm the storms with his words. And she weeps. These are the times where we don't push away from God. It's in our anguish and our hurt. We say, why God? It's, it's, it's important that we would say, why God, to God. Not say, why God, to people, but say, why God, to God. He can handle your questions and your hurt. You gotta go to him. And as she's doing this, this is all happening by the temple because they're sacrificing, they're sitting around the temple, they're eating the food. And she goes to a corner of the temple and she begins to cry and pray and weep bitterly. And the Bible says that her mouth is moving. And nothing's coming out. To the point where one of the priests, his name is Eli, he's noticing her in the corner, just crying. Just, just, just. He doesn't understand. He, he thinks she's drunk. She goes up, he goes up to her and says, what, what are you doing? You've got to go home. You've been drinking too much. And She said to him, oh, I'm not drunk. I'm, I, I, there's a storm in my heart, and I've got to get it out. And I'm crying out to God and here's what she was doing. She was making a vow with God in that moment and here's what her vow was. She made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, don't forget your servant but give her a son. This is very important because in this time, the nation of Israel, these 12 tribes that aren't quite a nation yet, there's no constitution, there's no legislative branch, it's just a bunch of tribes. They saw God as a tribal God over the whole people, not a personal God like you and me see him as a God who knows me. It was just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the the whole people. She's saying, remember me. Look at me. I need a personal God. Would you give me a son? And here's her promise to God. Here's the vow that she makes. I'll give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. If you give me a son, I'll I'll give him to you. And no razor will ever be used on his head. Now this is different than saying, God, if you just, I did not study for this test. If you will just give me a good grade, I'll start a small group in my home. Okay, God, I've made a mess of my life, but if you'll just give me a girlfriend, oh, it'll be all things better. Like, this isn't one of those if-then things. She's saying, I'm so committed to you, I'm saying to you, this isn't about me anymore. Would you just show yourself to me? Because having the son, I'm trusting you in this deal, and I'm gonna give you the son. I don't even need to keep it. So this isn't about my prosperity, my stability. I just need to know, are you really God? So she gave it to him, she gave him the promise, and here's what she did next. She went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Do you know what tends to happen when people pray to God? They still walk in doubt and worry. They still walk downcast, they still don't eat. They still don't trust. They, they, they wait for the answer prayer. Notice that, that Hannah did not have an answer to her prayer, yet she changed her perspective and she changed her emotion and she, she changed her systems. She chose, she chose to eat. She chose to change the way she looked. Many times, you know, people just live life. So many people live life They pray to God, but what they really want is the stability and prosperity and and, and happiness that comes from other people feeling their pain. So they'll pray about it, but then they walk around like like it's still so terrible. Like, I mean, God didn't hear them pray. That's called like Facebook posts. You pray about it, you give it to God, but then you post it all over Facebook so you can get a feeling of stability and prosperity and emotional healing by people saying, Ooh, I cannot believe they did that to you. And it's a false sense of answered prayer because it answers some emotion, but it doesn't necessarily deal with the situation. Is, 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 does that make sense? Yeah, it, do, it really does. <laughs> it, really, it does, Pastor. That's incredible. <clears throat> See, look, look at what we usually do when we pray. Here's here's our formula for prayer. It's natural. Pray, get pregnant, have joy. You could put anything in instead of pregnancy. Pray, get the promotion, have joy. Pray, get married, have joy. Pray, get healed, have joy. This is not Hannah's system. This is not Hannah's story. Hannah prays. She chose joy. And then she trusts God through the process. She leaves the outcome of her prayer to a God, and she chooses to eat something and not let her face be downcast anymore. Well, sure enough, a miracle does happen, and she gets pregnant, and when she gets pregnant, she brings to full term a baby boy. She never cuts his hair, and when he was very, very small, he gives him into the temple And in 1 Samuel chapter two, Hannah writes a a song. There's something about poetry through all of this story, even the origin stories of David. We'll see some more poetry written as we go. But here's the song she wrote. Look at the song she wrote after she had the baby. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. Like, like, like Like Bambi's dad, you know, it's like... big old antlers, just the horn is lifted high, the majesty. There's no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Notice what's missing in this song of joy? A baby. Her joy is not from the answer to prayer. Her joy is the one who answers prayer. The true joy and the true trust doesn't come in what she received, but in who she gave her needs to. And sure enough, that little baby boy, she would name him Samuel. He would go into the priesthood and Samuel would grow up. And at about 70 years old, he would begin to anoint the next king of Israel, Saul. Saul would be a mighty man, but Saul would have his shadows too. And Samuel would have to go meet Saul in private and say, you've done wrong and you are no longer the king. And as he turns to walk away, Saul will grab Samuel's coat and it will rip and Samuel will put the, he'll go double down on it. And he'll say, the same way my robe is ripped, the kingdom is ripped from your hands this day and he has chosen another and this other is better than you. These are the worst words for a narcissist Saul. He's the best. Nobody else is the best. And Samuel would begin to look for the next king. Saul now, having his anointing stripped away from him, he is the public appearance of a king, but God has stripped his anointing away to be king. And Samuel will go and anoint a 14-year-old shepherd boy. And now this shepherd boy doesn't even know what's next. He's anointed to be king. He is the king in private, while Saul is acting like the king in public. And Samuel is the linchpin that connects all of it together. And he came from a woman who would stand up and trust God with everything. What we're gonna see in this series is Saul and David are gonna be such strong warriors and leaders. Their lives are gonna collide ferociously like two bullet trains. That's where we're headed. But as we end today, I wanna just show you a couple of the shadow cast in this story as we finish up. See, you have leading actors and then you have the supporting cast and then you kinda of have people on the sideline. You don't even know who they are but they're mentioned in the credits. There's some people in this story that you'll never see. They don't, may not even be mentioned in the credits. But let me show you how the characters play out, the shadow cast as we end today. Number one, there's a parallel between Hannah and Israel Israel is part of the shadow cast in this whole story. See, watch. Israel was wanting security in a king, but Hannah, she wanted security in a son. Both wanted security. But God is gonna say to Hannah and to Israel, security isn't found in kings and security isn't found in sons. And God's gonna say to them, and he says the same thing to you and me. Same thing to you and me, Nacogdoches. Same thing to you and me, guys in Duncan and Dieball. He says it like this, find security in me. Find security in me. All your security, you're looking for all kinds of places, your nest egg, it doesn't you work hard, uh, put stuff away for retirement, be diligent, be good stewards, but find security in me. There's a parallel number 2 between two impossible births. Two impossible births. Hannah who has an impossible birth because her womb is closed. And another woman, hundreds of years later, named Mary. Mary, she has no problem getting pregnant. Okay, she can conceive. So Hannah, she's not able to conceive, but Mary, her problem is she's not married. So for Hannah, it baby meant gaining everything. But for Mary, later on, we would realize that a baby meant losing everything possibly. What will her parents say? What would Joseph say? What will my friends say? The, the parallel between these two women and in two impossible births. One is finally conceived as a blessing of God from Elkanah and Hannah. The other one is conceived from the Holy Spirit as the son of the living God. But what did happen? They both found security in God. Samuel would show up on the scene and he would become the prophet The priest, and he would be the one who would anoint the kings, but Jesus would come, a son of Mary, and would be the prophet, the priest, and the one true king. It's the parallels. God delivered Hannah from a curse and shame so she could rise up and sing about the goodness of the Lord, but what would happen that God, even though he delivered Hannah from shame and a curse, God had Jesus take on our curse and our shame and take that on the cross so you didn't have to wear it and bear it anymore. There's a parallel between Hannah and us the truth is this (sighs) write it down the irreligious those that aren't looking for God they think they need something instead of Jesus so the people that are like ah that's your truth that's not my truth so you know what they find they try they search for a king they search for a king for stability prosperity and happiness my truth my feelings, my emotions, my experiences, my addictions, you name it, my, hap- my relationships, sex, all of it, stability, prosperity, happiness, feel good, I'm gonna search it. The irreligious think, I, don't, I need something besides Jesus. But there's another danger, and it's not the irreligious, it's the religious people. We don't wanna be that either. The religious people, they think they need something in addition to Jesus. So, yeah, they find Jesus, but then it's got to be a certain style of music. It's got to be a certain style of dress. It's got to be this, this, and that. And you got to, you know, just, you got to, you can't smoke and you can't chew and you can't go with girls that do. You can't laugh unless you're laughing at the devil you got to put all these things, all these expectations and live a certain way and, and attend a certain denomination and do all these things. And the religious people are just as scared and searching for a king as the irreligious. And anything that we add on to Jesus means Jesus isn't a good enough king for you and for me. If it's Jesus plus something, it ain't Jesus. So King Jesus is the ultimate answer for everyone's greatest Israel didn't need a king. Israel needed God. Israel didn't need stability with their crops, so they would pray to the rain god. They would pray to other gods. They needed God. Israel had problems in the temple and they made the temple a sexual thing and they would have temple prostitutes and they would have sex in order to have this orgy filled atmosphere in order to have this this feeling of 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 paradise in order to get close to god and he said it's just me have no other gods before me it's me and me alone and when you can find that jesus is all you He will be. When you can see that Jesus is all you need, He will be all you need. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads today? And let me talk to those of you in the room. You need Jesus. Jesus left heaven for earth to serve you to live a sinless life, to die on the cross, a gruesome death, to be dead three days and raise again in power that he says that same spirit can dwell in you. And so if you are at a place where you've been trying to be the king of your life, you've been trying to be the final authority. Today, in this moment, it's not about what you could do to make things right in your past, It's about offering all of that to God. And you would say in your own words, Jesus, I surrender to you. Be my king. I believe you are who you say you are and I want to live for you. And I want you to be on the throne of my heart and the throne of my life and the throne of my emotions. I so quickly let other people sit on the throne of my emotions. I I want you to be on the throne. So today, I don't get everything right, but I do want to make things right. Thank you for not being mad at me today, Jesus. For loving me so much, you would give me this moment to make things right with you. I am saved and you are my king and I receive it today because I believe you are who you say you are. Now with heads bowed and eyes still closed, I do want to say a prayer. Lord, there are those that are in this room and a story about a barren woman hits home and so god i pray that you would give them the desires of their heart that you would bind up any wounds that they would trust you in the process thank you god that you meet us right where we are god for those that are praying and have an expectation to see it and then have joy i pray all of us would choose joy today. We choose it and we trust you in the process. We ask it all in the name of Jesus, the strong son of God. Everybody said amen.